0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tri-Doc Podcast. My name is Jeff Sankoff, emergency physician, multiple Ironman finisher, and your host, the Tri-Doc, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. On the show today, Ellen Hart has a long and storied history in running and triathlon. She has been the world champion at the duathlon and international distance for ITU. in Ironman for the WTC, and has many, many podium finishes in races of all distances over a career that spans several decades now. But along the way, Ellen has dealt with some really difficult personal issues, and she shares the highs and the lows of her personal journey and how sport helped her emerge mostly unscathed when she joins me for an interview. The triathlete Ruta will share insight and tips, as well as a course review of the North American Ironman Championship, otherwise known as Ironman Texas. But first, I have a listener question to answer. All athletes are looking to better themselves in any way that they can to try and find those marginal gains so that they can make the most of their performances. One of the ways that many will employ to try and do this is through the use of legal supplements. I know that I don't have to tell you that the marketing of supplements is often over the top with respect to the claims that are made regarding the results that you can expect from using any given product. But what does the science say? Today, I look at the evidence for one example. Thanks to those of you who have taken the time to leave a rating or a review wherever you download this podcast. If you haven't yet done so, please consider it, as they really do help. Now, let's get on with the program. It should come as no surprise that athletes are always looking for an edge. Be it through the latest and greatest tech, the newest training techniques, or through finding the right nutritional components, most every athlete that I have ever encountered is always trying to figure out how they can eke out every second they can from their race time based on the amount of time they have to train. Forgetting those who would bend the rules or outright break them by putting things in their bodies that are outright banned as performance enhancers, many athletes are swayed by the claims by the innumerable manufacturers of legal supplements that purport to enhance speed, recovery, or ability in other ways. I'm sure that I won't be shattering anyone's perceptions when I say that the vast majority of these claims are hyperbole and bear little resemblance to reality, but the popularity of supplements persist, and it's why this is a multi-billion dollar industry. A couple of supplements in particular are extremely popular amongst cyclists and triathletes, and they are the subject of this and the next podcast listener submitted question. Michael wrote in to ask me about the benefits of supplementing with creatine and beta-alanine. Is there evidence to support their use, and if so, how should they be taken? In this episode, I'm going to talk about creatine, and in the next episode, I'll focus on beta-alanine. Creatine supplementation has been around for quite some time. It began to be used primarily in weightlifting circles because of its ability to help add muscle mass. But as time passed and scientists learned more about this molecule and what its function is in muscle cells, creatine began to find uses in other sports as well. Creatine is a naturally occurring molecule made up of amino acids found in red meat and seafood. Our livers also synthesize this molecule in order to provide adequate amounts to our muscle cells where most of it is found. The role that creatine plays in muscle cells is essentially as a transporter of phosphate molecules. As our cells do work, they metabolize the primary source of energy, adenosine triphosphate or ATP, to adenosine diphosphate or ADP. The cleavage of the phosphate bond releases an enormous amount of energy and powers the functions of the cells. In the muscle cells, this function is to contract. ADP and phosphate must then be recombined through other metabolic processes in order to restore the supply of ATP, and this is done by harvesting the energy in the fuels that we eat, be they carbohydrates, proteins, or fats. Creatine helps in this process by binding to the phosphate molecule that's liberated when ATP is cleaved to ADP and phosphate, and shuttles it into the areas of the cell where the ADP and phosphate can then be rejoined, reconstituting ATP. About 1-2% to of creatine is degraded on a daily basis and excreted by the kidneys in the urine, and therefore has to be replaced in the diet or by synthesis in the liver. Supplementation of creatine can increase muscle stores of creatine quite dramatically and actually provide a reservoir of phosphorylated creatine at the ready for when ATP consumption begins. The best part about creatine supplementation is that it is completely safe, fairly quick to build up stores, and easy to maintain. I'll discuss the supplementation protocol a little later on. First though, we really need to consider the more important point of whether or not it works. Specifically, what benefits does supplementation with creatine have for the endurance athlete? To answer this question, I began by doing a literature search for review articles to collate the scholarly research on this topic. The first one that I came across was a doozy, and a reminder of why it's so important to remain skeptical of what you read, even when what you are reading is published in a scientific journal. And this is especially true when what you are reading seems to be so heavily biased in its conclusions in one direction. The paper that I found was titled, International Society of Sports Nutrition Position Stand, Safety and Efficacy of Creatine Supplementation in Exercise, Sport, and Medicine, and was published in the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Now, the ISSN is a a thing. I did some digging, and they look to be a legitimate organization run by some pretty well-intentioned people who, happily, don't take themselves too seriously. Unfortunately, this tripe, posing as a scientific paper, is a black mark on the ISSN, and frankly, they should be more than a little ashamed of themselves. After a well-written background, the paper goes on to sing the praises of creatine supplementation in ways that I have really never seen the likes of. Not once to be dissuaded by conflicting or negative evidence, the authors of this paper manage to turn negative results sound like significant findings in support of creatine, and strangely ignore most of the evidence that inconveniently contradicts their claims. Halfway through this review, the authors have asserted that creatine supplementation is as close to manna from heaven as near as I could tell, with its promise to improve performance, speed recovery, prevent aging, decrease heat illness when performing in hot environments, prevent injuries, and decrease the severity of concussions and TBI, or traumatic brain injury. Now, creatine is that amazing? Why, I wondered, had I never heard of any of this before. So I went to the first place I always go whenever I am suspicious of the intent of the authors of a paper, and it's where I would encourage all of you to look as well whenever you have similar feelings of unease, and that is the disclosures at the end of the paper where the authors list who fund the paper and list any potential conflicts of interest. In this case, the review article upon which the ISSN was issuing an important position statement was entirely funded by the Council for Responsible Nutrition. Now, if you're like me, you have no idea who this council is. So you turn to your friend, Mr. Google, and find that said council turns out to be an industry organization and lobbying group for all of the major manufacturers of, you guessed it, supplements, including creatine. Oh, did you hear that sound? That was the sound of the ISSN's credibility evaporating on this issue. Okay, so what else is out there? And is there any actual scientific evidence untainted by the tendrils of creatine manufacturers? Fortunately, there is, and I can sum it up pretty succinctly. When we think of exercise, we can categorize it pretty broadly as short-duration, high-intensity activities that are primarily anaerobic, think track running or cycling sprinting, powerlifting or football, versus longer-duration, lower-intensity activities that are primarily aerobic, such as distance running, long-distance cycling, and triathlon. For anaerobic activities, those short-duration, high-power sports, having an abundant store of phosphorylated creatine at the ready can be really helpful in allowing the muscle cells to rapidly turn over ATP and perform at a high level. For aerobic activities, though, there's more time available for the ATP to ADP to ATP cycle to occur, and the amount of creatine turns out to be much less important. And indeed, this is precisely what the evidence shows. Time and again, when researchers have looked at these questions in an unbiased way, creatine has indeed been shown to improve performance in the power anaerobic sports, albeit in an incremental and pretty small fashion. While for longer duration aerobic sports, supplementation with creatine has never been shown to have any impact at all. Now, there are a couple of other ways that creatine has been suggested to work, where the evidence has not been consistent one way or the other, so I think at this point the questions remain unsettled, or, more likely, we could probably say that creatine simply does not have any significant impact. Because creatine supplementation causes retention of water in the muscles, there have been suggestions that creatine supplementation can increase overall body hydration and decrease the likelihood of developing heat-related illnesses when performing in hot environments. Thus far, though, there really is no good evidence one way or the other on this. But I can safely say that creatine supplementation definitely increases your total body water and therefore increases your body weight, something that might not be desirable for a triathlete or marathon runner or a cyclist. With respect to injury prevention and recovery, creatine really has not been shown in any meaningful way to help, though some studies suggest benefits in certain sports and others have shown no effects. There certainly haven't been any studies that show that creatine actually leads to injuries or prolongs recovery. So after all that, what if you want to give this a go? How do you do that? Well, creatine comes in a variety of formats, but the one that you want is the monohydrate. Ignore the significantly more expensive and ultimately no better creatine hydrochloride or esters that stores will try to sell you. The most commonly described protocol is to take 5 grams of creatine monohydrate 4 times per day for 7 days, and after that you can reduce the amount to 3-5 to grams per day. Again, this protocol is really only likely to help with short-duration, anaerobic types of performance, and with increasing muscle mass as well. But if that's what you do and what you're looking for, there it is, and I'd be interested to hear what kind of effects you see in yourself. On the next podcast, I'm going to answer the second part of Michael's question related to beta-alanine. But in the meantime, if you have a question for me to consider answering on the show, send it to me at tri Underscore DOC at iCloud.com. When I sat down to interview my guest for this episode, I had no idea how far reaching our discussion would be, nor how long we would talk for. Rather than edit our conversation for length, I've decided to break the interview into two parts. The conclusion of the interview will be in the next episode of the podcast. Here, then, is the first part of my conversation with Ellen Hart. My guest today is one of the most decorated women in running and triathlon, especially in the latter over the past 12 years. During that time span, she has collected 32 age group wins in 70.3 and full Ironman distance races, including three wins in Kona and seven at the 70.3 World Championships, three duathlon World Championships, two ITU World Championship victories, one international and one sprint, and three ITU long course wins as well. In one 50-day period, she won five world titles, including 70.3, 2ITU, Kona, and then the Duathlon Worlds. Before all that, she was an attorney, the First Lady of Denver married to the Honorable Federico Peña, with three adult children, and was the subject of an ABC made-for-TV movie, Ellen Hart Peña, Dying to be Perfect chronicling her struggles and recovery from an eating disorder while being a celebrity spouse. Today, I am very happy to say she's joining me on the TriDoc Podcast. Welcome, Ellen.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. That seems a little... um Flowery for, for, for an introduction, but thank you. The
0: truth, the truth <laughs> is what the truth is. So, Ellen, you and I met um, about seven years ago now, when we were both rehabbing from injury. And I know that despite your incredible success in the sport, you've dealt with a lot of injuries. So, how have you managed to maintain this level of motivation and success with the you know the injuries that you've had to deal with and keep coming back from?
1: Um, Jeff, I think that injuries are part and parcel of the sport that we do. And the older we get, probably the more susceptible we are to parts wearing out or parts breaking down. And the more we need to be careful about recovery and diet and some of the things that keep us healthy. But Inevitably, I do seem to get hurt from time to time. Um, less so now as a triathlete than when I was a runner. Because as a triathlete, if something hurts in your foot, well, you can go swim. Um, whereas if you're a runner, you know, you pretty much just run. Um, and I don't think I was as modulated as I am now about. Exercise and um, and recovery, and actually listening to one's body. I think I probably could tell you in a clinic that how important it was to listen to your body. But I think when it happened to me, I just wanted to keep going, and you know that was that never turned out very well. And so I used to get you know fairly significant injuries in running. Um, but the reason the way I got into triathlon was that. My boyfriend, my husband now, um, Rob knew that I had been struggling with plantar fasciitis and he said, he got me a bike for my 47th birthday and he said, we can do this together plus you won't get hurt as much. and That really was true, um, both, both parts of it. Um, The injuries still, I mean, some of them are traumatic injuries, like when you crash your bike, which luckily for me hasn't happened very often. Um, Some of them are overuse injuries, like a stress fracture. Um, I just, in November, had my first surgery, um, and that was a tendon repair, perineal tendon in my foot, and a a bone graft into the calcaneus um, to try and... I don't know, give it some scaffolding to rebuild some damaged bone. Um, And that's that's a tough one for me. And the remaining motivated, that was sort of the gist of your question. I think my default mode when I get injured, and I hate to say it, is that I get really depressed and I sort of throw up my hands and just want to, you know, climb under the covers with a bag of cookies and, you know, just kind of say, oh never mind. I never liked I never liked my sports anyway, so like what does it matter? Um but I also realized that part of what makes me me is that enjoyment of movement and that enjoyment of um I don't know at some level pushing limits and they become different limits when you're you know, from when you're an elite runner in your 20s to when you're a age group triathlon. Now that I'm 60, um, you know that's sometimes the beauty of age group sports that you still have a, you know, a really valid um, competitive group. Um, so that's one of the things that does give me um, motivation. It's like, oh, if I get back, I can maybe get a spot to this really great race that I want to go to, whether it be. 70.3 World Championships this year in Nice or other things in the past. Um, motivation, sometimes it's really, really hard to come by. And you just, I just play, you know, sometimes little games with myself. that And, and one of the best games is the 15-minute game, which is... <laughs> Just get out there for 15 minutes. If you're really miserable or if something really hurts or if you just don't want to do it, it's okay. Like I give myself that permission. And almost all the time, once I get going, and by 15 minutes in doesn't feel so bad. And I want to do a little bit more. And, you know, I probably have that kind of personality where if I write something down, I want to accomplish it, you know, whether it's a to-do list or, um, a workout. Um, for me, I feel as if, and it's hard coming to this realization because sometimes it feels really selfish, but for me, I give my workouts priority and it's not priority over, obviously, you know, the important things that go on in life, like kids or job or other kinds of things. But I do give it priority in my life because I know that that makes me a better version of myself. I mean, it makes me more, um, alert. It makes me happier. It makes me more energetic, um, but mainly the happiness piece, and also if the whole day sort of goes starts going down the greasy chute, you know, I can just say, oh, but I did a workout, even if it was only a half-hour workout, and that makes me feel, you know, as if I've accomplished something. So there are various things that I use to motivate myself on a day-to-day basis, um, I don't, you know, looking back, it it, it seems like a whole lot of years that I've been doing something or another. And there have been a couple of times when I've thought, I'm done, I'm really done. And then, I don't know, like some little inside voice says, let's... Let's go do something let's try it again
0: have you found that as you've gotten older that it's any more difficult uh more difficult to come back from injuries or more difficult to keep that motivation it seems like every time i see you you've got a big smile uh no matter whether it's with a cast or with a brace or a sling or i mean you're always happy which is wonderful Aww. and um I, you know, I think that's uh, very laudable, but I also, you know, when I see you sometimes I turn to, you know, I'll turn to a friend and be like, oh my gosh, poor Ellen, she's hurt again. (laughs) Uh, Is it, it, do you find that as you get older, you know, injuries seem to come more frequently or that it's a little bit harder to come back from? To
1: get back from them and just to, you know, kind of set the record straight, not to burst your, you know, happy Ellen balloon, but um, you know, there's another side to things and and I love, really, really like people. And usually, when I'm out and interacting with people, there's something like so interesting about that person or something um, you know that we share or some way that we connect. And that brings me happiness and joy. But there are definitely a lot of times. I mean, I am on an antidepressant, and sometimes even that doesn't really, totally do the trick. There is depression on both sides of my family. There is alcoholism on both sides of my family. And I think my eating disorder as a compulsive addictive behavior manifested um, that genetic trait of addictive, you know, compulsive personality, but it manifested in eating disorders, not in alcoholism.
0: So Lionel Sanders has been incredibly open about his own issues with addiction. And he is an amazing individual for what he's overcome and for how he has succeeded in the sport. And he will be the first to say that a large part of his success is due to that addictive part of his personality. Do you think that your success is in part due to that as well?
1: I think it is, and I think there's you know sometimes a fine line between you know the healthy expression of exercise and the joy of movement and the pathology of you know compulsive exercise and wanting to keep going and wanting you know to do well let's just want do one more, um, whatever that one more is, whether it's Iron Man or you know another. Hundred in the pool, um, and I applaud Lionel Sanders and everyone. I think Sarah True just recently talked about mental illness and depression. But every one of us has probably been on the spectrum someplace, some time in our lives. And the more that we talk about it as a part of human existence, I think the less it helps lessen the stigma of you know mental health issues. You know, nobody says. Oh, like, you know, I think less of that person because whatever, they got cancer or they broke a bone or whatever, but there still seems to be some stigma about mental illness. And so for Lionel Sanders to be so open about it, and I think there was an issue in the, uh, or an article in the, in a recent issue of um, USA Triathlon magazine with Sarah True that was really, really good. And I've given it to a couple of people. Just, just to say, read that because it's so hard to explain it you, you, when it happens to you in words that are maybe understandable to you know a wider audience.
0: You're absolutely right. Um, un, it is unfortunate that mental health uh, continues to have that stigma, and uh, I think that. Uh, you're right about this notion that you know people having an outlet for these kinds of things and uh, you know manifesting itself in um, you know this incredible proficiency of physical uh, endeavors is a way for it to be talked about in a, maybe in a more normalizing fashion, and I think that's a very good thing.
1: And there's an organization I know there's. Um, a chapter here in Denver and I think there are in other cities as well called something having to do with Phoenix and it works with people who have been in recovery from alcohol drugs you know a number of addictive substances and I just think that you know that that we can't all be perfect all the time but that definitely physical activity and setting goals in an athletic context is a much healthier outlet for those kinds of feelings and tendencies than, you know, for me using food or other people using other substances
0: right And I do want to talk about um, your eating disorder history. We or I have talked on the podcast recently about the female athlete triad and how disordered eating is such an important issue for especially young women, yes. uh, especially young uh, young girls who are elite athletes. How did that play a role for you in your athletic and, you know, abilities? Did you, did it impede your progress? Did you, did, did it, did your athletics and your eating disorder have any crossover in that, you know, one helped the other or one, you know, did one led you to discover the other?
1: There's definitely a relationship. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, like a hand in a glove, you know, that for a while as a runner when you lose weight, you start running faster because you have the same size engine and a smaller chassis. And in college, my coach said over over winter break that you know I needed to lose some weight. And then when I came back, and I had lost some weight in a fairly healthy way, um, he said, "Well, you know, it looks like you know you might be gaining it back or something." And I, there, something just clicked in my mind. He was not an evil person. But he was definitely the catalyst for something that had lain dormant for a long time, and really, re- and I responded to that in a way that encompassed some other psychological factors and other circumstances in my life at the time. And I remember thinking, he will never say that again. No one will ever say that again about me. And I started losing weight, and then I started being bulimic, and, um, and I always thought I was in control. And then about a year later, When I had my first job, I realized I was just so out of control. I couldn't, you know, I always thought I could stop whenever I wanted to um, because it was a self, the, the bulimia, the binging and purging was a self induced behavior. But I couldn't. I absolutely couldn't. And it then took on a life of its own. And at that time, there, I didn't have the internet. I didn't have a recovery center in, you know, the next city over. I didn't have people that I knew that had eating disorders because no one talked about eating disorders. And so the first five years of my eating disorder was just this kind of self-loathing isolation, you know. And, and you know, and I tried to do things, but I never you know but i always thought it was my own fault you know that i didn't have the self discipline or the self control you know necessary like i could run a marathon at under 6 minute pace but i couldn't control what i put into my mouth or you know the 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 bingeing and purging behavior
0: how did you how did you get better how did you manage it
1: i think it was cumulative and there were times when i was absolutely Utterly hopeless, and thought that the only thing that I could do was to just exit this planet. Um, And I was obsessed with suicide. I mean, I didn't, you know, take any action. There were a couple of people that I knew that had been ill with eating disorders and they had gotten better. And I clung to them, you know, I mean, not physically, but the idea of that, the possibility of recovery and the hope, um, like with all of my strength. And I went to therapy, didn't work, you know, I mean, but I think things were going on inside. I think I was addressing some issues, but the behavior takes on a life of its own. And at some point, you don't know how to eat anymore. And you don't know what it feels like to be full. And you don't know what it feels like to be hungry. And so um, and I kept thinking, well, if only X happened, then I'd be fine. If only Y happened, but then X happened and Y happened, and like I still wasn't fine. You know? And this was
0: all going on when you were living a very public life.
1: Yes, yes. right. Um, and but the the thing that did happen, and it doesn't, you know, there's there's a turning point or a catalyst for each person, and a leap of faith involved. Um, and mine is not the same for everybody, but after some infertility work. I did get pregnant and then at 6 months I started having what well, it turned out to be false labor but I thought I'm going to lose this baby and I made a deal. I made a deal with however you want to however you want to describe it whether it's God or the universe or you know the, the 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 powers of goodness that if I curtailed my Oh yeah because as soon as I got pregnant I thought oh that's it. I'm going to be fine now. But then I started bingeing purging again. And also my doctor said, yeah, everybody vomits. Like when I said, "Oh, I've, you know, I've been vomiting." And he says, "Well, everybody vomits, you know." So, like
0: not not understanding that the vomiting was self-induced.
1: Oh, no, and I didn't right. really explain it because yeah. I was ashamed. So, but I once you had deal. once
0: you had false labor, you made a deal and you started. And
1: I said, I will, you know, curtail this behavior. And all I can promise is three months. All I can promise is the end of the pregnancy because I can't promise anymore. I just cannot promise anymore. But um, and it was really hard because I didn't know how to eat anymore, and I didn't know what to do with some of those feelings that the eating was. Um, you know, a, a way to deal with those feelings, those uncomfortable feelings and the emotional distress, whatever it was. And so, I mean, I was, and, and there wasn't really anyone I could talk to because my husband at the time, you know, thought that, I mean, I had, you know, full disclosure, I had said that, I had an eating disorder, but let him think that it was just, you know, a bad habit, like you two candy bars instead of one candy bar. And um, so there really wasn't anybody that I could talk to, but I sort of clung to that hope. And for three months, I started getting like a tiny little finger hold on, on health and on being free from the constant binging and purging, and having to find food, and having to find a bathroom, and having, you know, like that whole, my whole existence had been based on that, even though I had this public life, and I was, you know, everybody thought I was, you know, healthy and happy, and this runner, and the mayor's girlfriend, or the mayor's wife, or whatever. Okay, so then, once I had my baby, it was, like, I had three months where I hadn't been, you know, kind of doing my eating disorder and and then i had this child that i really wanted to raise in the best way that i could and i wanted to be the best mom and it also i don't know sort of didn't matter to me right then if i won any races or if i ran fast or if i fit into a size four or a size six or a size two or a size 14. it was like i have this other human person that i'm taking care of and then I mean, I just kind of, once I got that little finger hold, um, I was really quite healthy until about 11 years later when I was going through my divorce. And then it's kind of like the old ghosts come back and the old ways of dealing with emotional discomfort.
0: That's still pretty incredible. Most people are not able to pull themselves out of eating disorder without a lot of help. And the fact that you were able to get yourself out of it the first time is just amazing. When you relapsed, did you... then pull yourself out again or did you get help no no
1: no no no. i went to therapy and i went to 12-step programs and i did everything because i also had the fear then that in the divorce that if if that were part of of my you know person that my children would be taken away from me right and that was you know worse than death and then
0: as as such an accomplished and phenomenally successful triathlete, I mean, we all know how nutrition is such a big deal. Um, how have you managed to forestall those kinds of habits?
1: It doesn't completely go away. And that, I know, sounds like a little bit of a downer for this happy story of recovery. But you always have... I mean, like, if you don't have another cigarette or if you don't have another, you know... Drug, you can still survive, but you can't survive without food, and so you have to develop, you know, coping mechanisms and, you know, ways of dealing with food combined with ways of dealing with feelings, and you know everybody does comfort eating. Everybody eats a little bit too much sometimes. Everybody maybe eats a little bit too little sometimes, um, and so you know there's a a you know give and take. But I I have to admit, with some still um, measure of shame, that there have been a couple of times, one in particular in 2011, when I went back into the anorexia side, because I went to a race, an early season race, I had won Kona the year before, went to an early season race, I came in second in an age group in a small-ish race, um, to somebody who ended up, winning kona at one point so she wasn't like some slug uh you know but but there was somebody at the race who said you know i was saying you know i'm not really sure what all the factors were and he said look at her the winner look at you the second place person she weighs 10 pounds less than you do wow and i said
0: "Um, i mean talk about the absolutely. I mean, never mind. It's the wrong thing to say to someone in the first place. But it's. Yes. The, I mean, talk about the wrong thing to say to someone with a history like yours. And
1: I said, you can't make jokes like that. You know, I have a history of eating disorders. And I oh, tried, and this was
0: someone who knew. Yes. Wow.
1: And it's somebody that I knew, and I tried to let it just go through. But it through took me. root. It did. It took and root. and then I just coincidentally decided to lose a little bit of weight when something else of, you know, emotional weight was happening in my life and then I couldn't stop and so two thousand eleven
0: so it's always there it's, it's always there. there for you it's it's not it's, um, I mean that's got to be tough I mean triathlon especially you know uh, I mean it's a it, Listen. Let's face it. I, I, there is an issue of, of of keeping your weight under control and not eating too much. But you have this balance that you have to constantly be aware of. You know, am I am I eating properly or am I succumbing to these demons again? That's got to be healthy, tough.
1: When I'm healthy, I gain, and I don't know if it's ten pounds or eight pounds or twelve pounds. I don't know. But you know, during a good half to three quarters of the year. I'm at a different weight and I'm at a different size in my clothes, and that feels healthy to me. And then when I start training for something like an Ironman, really training for an Ironman, you just put in a lot more, and my body responds. And so I'm at a lower size and a smaller, I mean, a lower weight and a smaller size. But that's all been healthy. That's all been healthy, except that every once in a while, some little bit of pathological thinking takes root and then those you know eating disorder demons are just like clawing at the window right you know
0: what you just said is so important though because as i've alluded to in past episodes eating disorders are characterized by a distorted body image and what you just said about you know putting on a few pounds and still feeling like you were healthy that suggests that you know you've overcome this and uh you know i i First of all, thrilled and happy for you, but at the same time, I recognize that it's a constant battle. I um, have a, a close friend who's also a triathlete and who has related to me, you know, some of her own struggles, some of the things that you mentioned about a coach, a running coach, saying things to you about losing weight. She she dealt with as well, and that was particularly painful for her, and she still carries some of those scars. And fortunately, uh, she never had an eating disorder, but um, she definitely had disordered eating and and was very conscious of these things what kind of advice do you have for women um to to try and be satisfied with their body image and to try and be satisfied with their um accomplishments in triathlon or running or anything really and and not become so obsessed with uh and and I mean it's not fair just to just say women because I think men have this too but right. but let's face it it's much more for yeah, for it's women yeah.
1: um but maybe a little bit more um in the sport of triathlon um you know more more men i think about what i would tell myself i think about what i would tell my daughters i think about what i would tell my friends people that i care about people that i love and i would never be so hard on other people as i am on myself and what i would tell them is that there's only one you And that's all you have, and you get to be the boss of you. And there is health at any size, there is joy in movement at any size. Um, That there are, you can look at elite triathletes, even. And yes, most of them are fairly lean, but you can see people that are really, really extraordinarily proficient, and really fast that are not little string beans. And, um, you know, and you can, and that's one of the things that I like about local races or smaller races is that there are all kinds of people out there, um, you know, trying to accomplish a goal or trying to experience an event and that the health Comes from inside of you, and it's, you know, it's definitely your body is a mixture of the exercise that you do, the food that you take in. Um, You know, I'm much more concerned about the quality of food that I eat now. I used to think calorie in was the same as calorie out, and it was like a game to to take in fewer calories and expend more calories. And I don't think that that's true anymore. I think that your body wants good, wholesome. Um, whole, unprocessed food, and that doesn't mean you can't have, you know, a birthday cake, or, you know, I probably have some kind of dessert item five days a week, and, you know, but I, but it's different from how it used to be. I mean, it's, it's more, I'm more aware of, you know, what I'm eating rather than just stuffing it in to fuel my next workout, but hopefully not fuel it too much. Um, I think the advice that I would give my daughters or my friends is that you... It sounds clichéd, but you are beautiful just the way you are, and I really um, admire people and even people for, I mean, maybe even especially people for whom it's not the easiest, most natural thing um, because our society, you know, serves up processed food and wants us to be s- sedentary. You know, so for the people where it's a little bit of an extra effort, I, th- I, I am just full of admiration. And it doesn't matter. I mean, I know that it matters to most people that they make the finish line. And that's, yes, I think that's admirable. But just the effort is also really important. And the places that you can go in your mind and the limits that you can supersede um, that you never thought you'd be able to. And I know you and I just talked about that when you started triathlon, that you didn't think that you'd be that good and 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 you incrementally got better and, and, and surpassed limits that you might have thought um, were, you know insurmountable so you know that that it's an experience and that not everyone is cut out for running not everyone's cut out for um triathlon but you know that there's something really good and really healthy and really joy giving about movement
0: that concludes the first part of my interview with ellen hart part two will be in the next episode of the tri-doc podcast and now it's time for the triathlete loutard That segment of the show when I'm joined by a guest to discuss a race on the Ironman and Ironman 70.3 calendar that is a worthwhile spot to go to visit to race. For today's episode, I will be talking about the Ironman North American Championship, otherwise known as Ironman Texas, held in the woodlands north of Houston. Joining me to discuss this race is Lindsay Deneen. Lindsay comes from a running background, having run at the collegiate level at CU Boulder, where she studied kinesiology. She went on to become a proficient swimmer based on a strong foundation that she built as a child doing year-round swimming from ages 6 to 14, and began triathlon in 2015 where she debuted at Ironman Arizona, finishing 6th in her age group. She followed that up with being the top female amateur finisher in the Boulder Ironman in 2017, and then placed 2nd in her age group at Ironman Texas in 2018. Lindsay currently works as a physiotherapist in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm glad to say that we are friends and occasional training partners. Thanks for joining me today, Lindsay.
2: Thanks for
0: having me. We're talking about a race that is quite popular on the Ironman circuit. Uh, Big reason for that, of course, is because it's the Ironman North American Championship. It has a lot of Kona slots. Um, Because of that, I imagine it sells out quickly.
2: Actually, um, I registered for the race about four months out, so it still had availability at that time. So I don't think it's one of those that sells out you know, right as registration opens.
0: And um, why do you think that is? I mean, given the number of slots involved, uh, given the fact that it tends to be a fast course, uh, why do you think it doesn't sell out quicker than it does?
2: The only thing I can think of is... Um, it does tend to draw a pretty competitive field and so while it open or uh, offers a lot of slots, um, I think it is kind of a deterrent to some people knowing that they're going to be racing against some of the fastest people in the world.
0: Right. And looking at it now, uh, we're recording this uh, just under a month away from the race. It is sold out to general registration. I believe it sold out, like you said, though, not very quickly. I think mm-hmm. it didn't sell out until late in 2018 if i remember correctly there are still iron man foundation slots open so if somebody was looking to get in there is that uh, opportunity and i I imagine that one stays open later Uh, okay let's talk about how to get there it uh, is north of houston as i alluded to earlier but it's not in houston proper so um how did you get there
2: uh, I flew into um, IAH or um, Intercontinental uh, Bush Airport. There's two main airports in Houston that you could access. I don't think it really matters which one you fly into. Um, it's you know the fourth largest city in our country, so um, it is a huge city. Um, so you know, uh, recommended that um, once you fly in, or you give yourself a little bit of time to to get your bearings.
0: And then did you rent a car or, I mean, is that necessary to rent a car?
2: Um, you know, I do think in this particular situation, um, it was helpful to have a car, uh, the venue, the race venue itself is relatively far from either airport. And, um, you know, unlike other races that I've been in, um, some of the transition areas, um, they're not very close to the lodging. So it's just helpful to have that option of transportation.
0: And did they was there a good amount of parking on race morning so that when you drove you were able to you know leave your car there and then get back to it pretty easily?
2: I actually didn't have to do much driving race morning. I was able I stayed about a mile from the swim start so I walked.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So speaking of, uh, lodgings, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Is yeah. it, um, you know, is there a lot of lodging available? Is there a, a base hotel for this uh, race?
2: There's a base hotel. I didn't stay at it. Um, the race, the finish line is in downtown Woodlands area and there are a ton of hotels there. Um, I, like I said, I stayed logistically away from the finish. Closer to the start, just knowing that, you know, I need to get up and get over to the start in the morning. Didn't want to worry about how far I was away from that. But there's plenty of lodging in the woodlands. Um, It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, big populated area.
0: And that goes for both hotels, motels, and also I gather the standard, you know, Airbnb, VRBO type things as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, What about gear transportation? Did you take your bike with you on the plane? I I think tri-bike transport, I'm actually certain that they do. They do service this race. Um, How did you get your bike there?
2: I did use tri-bike transport for this race.
0: Okay. And that's obviously a a fairly safe and uh, secure method of getting your bike there without worrying about the airlines.
2: Absolutely.
0: Uh, When do you recommend people get there? ahead of the race. I know that's going to be a little bit, in, you know, dependent on people's uh, comfort level, but uh, what would you say sort of on the extreme side in terms of, you know, the short term, uh, the shorter, uh, you know, amount of days to get before get there before the race?
2: Well, it is a, a Saturday race, so you got to take that into consideration. Um, I flew in Wednesday evening, which I felt was just enough time to kind of get my bearings and relax. I think you also have to consider... Um, the, the climate there a little bit. Um, historically, it can be pretty hot and humid. So if you're not coming from weather like that, you might want to come in a little bit sooner just to acclimate. But um, I felt like getting in there Wednesday night was the perfect amount of time to get everything done that I needed to get done.
0: And um, Houston being a big city, as you said, obviously a lot of cultural attractions. If people are going there with family, uh, anything that you did or anything that you think other people might want to do in the area?
2: Um, you know, to be honest, um, I, I didn't have any family with me this time. Um, I had just a couple friends there for support. Um, and also if I'm being honest, my husband's from there, it's not really one of my favorite cities. It's just kind of urban sprawl. It's massive and it, there's a lot of traffic. Um, so I can't really speak to, um, that kind of stuff Honestly, just it not being one of my favorite places to be. <laughs>
0: right. and it, But in the woodlands itself, I imagine there's nothing, you know, n- no reason to get there early. There's nothing. No, no. You know.
2: Just a bunch of shops and restaurants. There's, you know, it's suburbia.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the course. Uh, the swim map has always been one that intrigued me because it looks a little bit bizarre. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about the swim. It, it's it's a river swim or a lake swim? It's kind of hard it's for me to understand. It's a lake of the
2: it's in Lake of the Woodlands, um, but you know you the second mile of the swim you turn into a canal. So that was that's kind of an interesting dynamic there because you go from you know what feels like open water into. This narrow canal, um, which is nice for spectators, but it gets a little rough and choppy in there, just on account of um, the water kind of bouncing off the walls, and um, that was kind of interesting to so, me. So
0: that's at the end of
1: the. That's swim? at the
2: end. So it starts out um, more in like open lake, and then you kind of navigate, um, you kind of make like a C shape, and then you turn into the canal, and that's a straight shot down to the swim finish. Um, But it was actually, um, I I felt like, one of the more aggressive swims I've ever been in. Um,
0: And And it's a rolling start, correct? It's a
2: rolling start. uh, But, again, I think that has to do with the number of people there. The whole race just felt that way to me. There's just so many more people than any other Ironman I've been in. And the swim start was just... Rough.
0: Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then uh, the water temperatures, is it wetsuit legal? Most it point? was
2: borderline um, wetsuit legal. It was on the warm side, but it was just cold enough to be wetsuit legal. It's um, funny how
0: they always seem to find that one place where <laughs> they can sink the thermometer and uh, make it wetsuit legal if it's close. Right? Yeah.
2: yeah, it, it was a warm swim, um, but it was wetsuit legal, but yeah, it felt a little warm to me.
0: And this one is point to point, so point to you point. set up your transition and then how do you get to the swim start?
2: You got to walk. So once you get your bike and get all your stuff on your bike, you've got about a mile walk to the swim start. And that's pretty much what everybody does. There's no real easy way to avoid doing that walk in the morning.
0: So give yourself lots of time. Give
2: yourself lots of time. Use it to you know, eat, have some coffee, whatever. Yeah. Chill out.
0: All right. Coming into T1, anything special about T1? Uh, I well, imagine it's the same sort of Ironman thing with wetsuit strippers and then dedicated tents for changing, but is there anything that you remember as being particularly unique to this race?
2: Not really. I just remember um, because we're in that canal at the end, um, you have to climb up a ladder to get out of the swim, and you've got all kinds of volunteers helping you do that, and then the wetsuit strippers are right there. You just kind of you know lie down right on the grass. Um and then yeah, nothing unique um or different than any other transition that I've been in.
0: Okay. Um now the bike course. A lot of controversy around this bike course. It was changed last year to accommodate uh, people in the Woodlands area who were not terribly happy with the traffic uh, impact that the race was having on their lives when this came through. So last year, the race was put onto the Hardy Tollway. Uh, Tollway. And as a result of that, and because of the uh, Texas State Patrol uh, laws marshalling of the course was minimal to non-existent for the age groupers and that resulted in uh, if anybody has seen the videos if you haven't you could look at them on youtube but basically just large pelotons uh, riding in masses with some pretty impressive crashes as a result Um, I understand you were out front of most of that and didn't see it yeah
2: I think if if you come out, you know, you know, closer to the front out of the swim, um you can avoid a little bit of the mayhem, at least in the first loop. But unfortunately, by the second loop, everyone's on the course and that's where things got frightening. Um and you know, it's just the first thirty miles are off of the hardy. Um, but once you're on there, you've got um well maybe it's 20 miles, but you've got, you know, twenty miles um, out and then 20 miles back and you do that again so 80 miles on the tollway and you know once you get four thousand people out there uh it it was it's pretty it was pretty terrifying
0: yeah and it looked scary as i said some of those videos are pretty dramatic Uh, my understanding is that they have made agreements with the texas state patrol to allow for motorcycles on the course later this year and so the marshalling is supposed to be significantly improved um but as we have seen in other races much of this falls on the athletes. And if the athletes are going to bunch up and not do anything about that, unless, you know, I mean, if it takes a marshal for people to get it in their heads that they shouldn't be sticking to each other, then these races are going to remain dangerous. I agree. Um, okay. The race itself, though, in terms of its profile, it, I mean, it's it's flat. Right?
2: Yes, very flat.
0: Anything to impede your velocity? Is it a windy course?
2: Um, it can be. I think we lucked out uh, with the weather last year, from what I've been told. Um, there was not much wind on the bike at all, and, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, when there's no wind on the bike, it's not necessarily beneficial for the run. I think a little bit of wind on the run is helpful to keep you cool, especially in a climate like that.
0: And at the end of the bike, are you returning to the same transition or is there a second?
2: Same transition from when you got out of the water. Um, and then you're, you know, that was really my my favorite part of the race. Are okay. we ready to talk about the run? Yes, I think
0: we can move <laughs> on to the run. Okay. So uh, let's talk about the, d- the description of the course. Is how many laps is it?
2: So um, it's it was three loops um, around the Lake of the Woodlands. So we were kind of running around the area where we swam. Um, it's a very spectator friendly run course and it's really a beautiful run course. Um, I think it's always up there ranked as one of the top runs in Ironman and I can see why, um, you kind of feel like, you know, I guess the name Woodlands, like you're, you're running through a forest for some of it. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden you come out of that and you're in a completely different neighborhood, but all along the run course, there were fans dotting it everywhere, cheering you on and you really felt the support along the run.
0: And uh, so you mentioned going through the woods, so mm-hmm. part of the course is shaded then. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. I would say of the eight-mile loop, you've got at least two to three miles of shade in each in each loop.
0: Okay. Yeah. And eight um, uh, stations, you know, usual yep. distance apart and yep. well-stocked. Yep. And then how's the finish line experience there?
2: Oh, the finish line's amazing. Um, they've got that downtown um, Woodlands area right by the Host Hotel, which I can't think of the name now, but I didn't stay there. But it's... Um a beautiful area. Um, tons of tons of fans and spectators and um you know, like any Ironman Man finish yeah. line I guess. It's
0: yeah. So um just looking at the weather over the last few years, this mm. race used to be a little bit later. It used to be mid-May, yeah, and it was a scorcher. Yeah, um, This race, uh, the highs were routinely in the high 80s, low 90s, with very high humidity. Yeah. And I gather that's probably why they moved it up. Now, they've only moved it up two, maybe three weeks, three but weeks. that seems to make a big difference because last year, the high was 83, Yep, as you said zero wind when you did it, which is the first year. Most years the winds tend to be, you know, fairly low, but with gusts up into the 13, 16 mile an hour range. Uh humidity is an issue if you're not used to it, as Lindsay mentioned, uh 65% humidity last year, but 80% the year before. So uh it really can vary. And uh now that it's in April, I think you can see that or you can look for high temperatures that aren't going to be quite as bad as they were in May. So that's good news. Um overall your opinion of the race and would you recommend it
2: um so for anyone who um is trying to you know who has a time goal um, which is really why i chose it um then yes i would highly recommend it um you know there are some considerations for people on the bike if you are at all you know tenuous about your bike handling or worried about riding in packs then you might want to consider another race because i don't really see that changing um, unless they, you know, change the distance of the loops, it's not going to change because they allow the same number of people. And so the bike is still going to be scary. Um, but if, if you want a fast course, then I highly recommend it. Um, and there's good hospitality in Houston, whether you like Houston or not.
0: Lindsay Deneen is a physiotherapist in Boulder, Colorado. She is a multiple Ironman triathlete and has won her age group in two of those, or excuse me, won her age group in Boulder and was second place in Texas in 2018. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today on the TriDoc podcast. Thanks for having me. that's it for another episode of the Dog Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And if you did, I hope that you'll leave me a rating and a review wherever you download. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.trydogpodcast.podbean.com. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri-doc at icloud.com. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services, as well as a means to communicate with me directly music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by the empty hours and is used with permission this song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where i hope that you will visit and give small independent bands a chance the tri-doc podcast will be back again soon with the continuation of our listener question on supplements the conclusion of my interview with ellen hart and another episode of the triathlete rutel until then train hard train healthy